Good morning. I have to tell you, and I think you will see, but as Lori was praying this morning, uh, she said one thing that really stood out to me, um, praying to the Lord um, for your servant who will bring the word this morning, and um, it's especially meaningful as I've been studying the passage we're going to be looking at today. And uh, I'll come back to it at, at the end of the message, but you'll see why uh, it spoke to my heart the way that it did. Um, super excited about uh, launching out a new sermon series uh, for the summer. Uh, it's great to get back into a book study. Um, so we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians. And I uh, was really excited about this uh, last year as we were thinking about doing it, having completed, uh, actually taking uh, part of 2019 and 2020 to do the book of Ephesians, to do the book of Colossians just made sense to be able to do. And not only will we be uh, going through the book of Colossians over the summer, but we're going to spend a couple of weeks in a book you've probably never heard sermons on, and that's the book of Philemon. So we're going to take uh, some time to do that as well. Uh, this morning's going to be a little bit different because every time you start out a, a book study, there's introductory material. It's not always the most exciting thing in the world, but it's necessary to kind of understand the background and the occasion of the book and the writing so that we can really draw out from the text uh, what God wants us to know and to understand and apply to our lives. And so, um, so hold on, hold on to your seats. We're going to be taking off. I think it's going to be a good time together, but let's pray first. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you uh, for this opportunity we have to come to worship you, to fellowship with one another, and Lord, to, to look to you as we study your word, as we allow uh, these words that you breathed and these servants penned that we might know you better that we might know ourselves, that we might be fit for the kingdom. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, use me this morning, encourage our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm just curious, um, how many of you have ever come across counterfeit money? Okay, a handful of you. It is not easy to tell, in most cases, I know there's the cheap stuff that's out there, you know, but I'm talking about um, organized crime, counterfeit money. Uh, it's not easy to tell. And you don't learn how to tell counterfeit money by studying counterfeit money, which is very interesting. You learn how to identify counterfeit bills by studying the real deal. And federal agents, bank uh, bankers, bank tellers, and, and others, they take a great deal of time examining and studying real bills so that they can identify the fake. If you don't know the characteristics of genuine paper currency, you will not be able to tell if the money that you've received is counterfeit. Only makes sense. But the same thing is true when it comes to teaching in the church. The only real way to discern false teaching is to know the truth and to know it well. 
we need to understand right doctrine if we are to avoid falling prey to false doctrine and to live a life pleasing to God. And that is what the book of Colossians is all about, which is it's just the more you read it, the more you study. It's only four chapters long. You, sh- you should read it over the whole summer multiple times. It just gets richer and richer and richer. And so um, a little bit of background information. The Apostle Paul wrote this epistle around 62 A.D. And I realize this might be a little small for you guys. Um, uh, for some reason, the next slide did not come up. don't know why. But let me bring up the graph. Here we go. And you'll notice I boxed in, and I can only point to one side. I'm sorry. Um, But uh, I've boxed in for you the area that we want to be concerned with. And you'll see here that Paul um, was in Rome under, under house arrest. And he wrote Colossians around 62 A.D., And this is important to to understand because this is one of his prison epistles, the others being Philemon, uh, Philippians, and Ephesians. And Paul never visited Colossae. So the natural question is, how how did the church come into being? Well, most likely... It came into being during his uh, three-year stay in Ephesus. So he spent three years, as you can see on the graph, uh, in Ephesus teaching uh, probably between 52 uh, AD and 55. And during this time, it's believed that a Colossian named Epaphras uh, came to Ephesus where he heard Paul's proclamation of the gospel responded to the gospel in faith, and then carried the gospel back to his hometown in Colossae, where he then shared the gospel with others, and people became saved, and that is how the church was established there. Now, Colossae is located here on the, uh, the Lycus River Valley. Oops, went back one. I need to go back here. And you'll see, here's, here's the, the Lycus River Valley. And you'll notice some other uh, familiar cities, Hierapolis, Laodicea. And then way over here is Ephesus. Ephesus was about 100 miles or so from Colossae. So to kind of put it into perspective, it's a little bit further than Dayton. So it's not that far. Now, granted, they didn't have cars or trains or planes back then, um, but it wouldn't have taken them that long to be able to get back and forth from Ephesus to Colossae. And um, you can see also, if you look carefully, this is the tell of Colossae, as you can see here as well. That's Mount Cadmus in the background. So this is where um, basically the area in which Colossae uh, was built. It no longer exists, of course. And you can see in the next picture, um, Mount Cadmus in the background. And that's the modern city of Honaz that's there. So Colossae would have been overlooking that particular town had it existed um, in Paul's day. So with, with the geographical setting there, let's talk briefly about the purpose, occasion, and background. Now at the time of the writing of this particular book, Epaphras uh, is no doubt in Rome with Paul, and that's where he most likely shared with him 
what was happening in Colossae, both the good and the bad. And of course, Paul learns a great deal of good about the Colossian church, but he also learns that there was a dangerous teaching that was threatening the church there in Colossae. And so Paul writes really with two purposes in mind. First is to refute the heresy that was being promoted there. And the second is to encourage the saints. But before we talk a little bit more about the second one, the the first part, you have to understand that this heresy or the false teaching that was being promoted was not as easy to identify as you might think because it was a syncretistic philosophy. Now, that's a big fancy word that basically means it was a blending of or a mixture of different aspects or different philosophies or religious ideas. It was a mix of Christianity, so there was some truth in there. It was a mix of paganism as well as Gnosticism. It was an early form of Gnosticism, and the Gnostics, it was a Greek philosophy that basically said that, you know, we, we achieve salvation and completion through special knowledge. And then also Judaism was mixed in to, to all of this. And that's probably the biggest danger about syncretistic philosophies is because there's always a little bit of truth mixed into it. And it can make it harder to identify false teaching when there's an element of truth to it. So Paul writes first to refute the, the, the false teaching, and he uses their own vocabulary to demonstrate that Christ is enough, that we don't need these other things that are being added to the gospel. And he uses terms like fullness, mystery, wisdom, to kind of highlight, because these are the things that were being promoted there in the church. He also addresses the error of trying to be made complete through things like this. Circumcision, asceticism, harsh treatment of the body, beat it into shape. Again, the Gnostics tended to believe that the spiritual realm was good and the material realm was evil. And since we have physical bodies, we have to, in a sense, buffet our bodies. We have, to, we have to treat it harshly because it's evil in and of itself, and the goal is to be spiritual. So he talks about that. He, he addresses the error of following human tradition, observing uh, uh, Sabbaths and festivals and various food regulations, He addresses the worship of angels and the boasting of visions that people claim to have seen. And all of these things may have seen seen to be, especially to new believers, like the real deal. Wow. Look at this. Listen to this. Look at this. This is true. But it's not. And Paul says it's man-made religion. So the teaching in Colossae was a 
false, deceptive philosophy. It lacked the power to save. It lacked the power to curb sinful impulses. And it lacked the power to make one complete in Christ. And so Paul goes on to um, refute these heretical beliefs by demonstrating that Christ is all we need. He exalts Christ as God in the flesh, as the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the head of the church, the first to be resurrected from the dead with a glorified body. See, Paul's argument's pretty simple. Christ is all you need. Christ is enough. He is supreme over all and completely sufficient for all things, including our salvation and our sanctification. Another big word, it simply means our becoming more and more like Christ. We need God's grace not only to save us from our sin, but to make us more like Jesus. And that's a process that will take our entire lives. The second purpose that Paul writes that I mentioned to you already was to encourage the Colossian believers to press on to maturity, to become more like Christ, and to continue to fight against sin. Like the letter to Ephesus, Coloss- uh, the, the letter to the Colossians was also a circulating letter Um, No doubt to keep other churches uh, from falling prey to the same deceptive philosophy. And you can see that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul writes, he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, as far as we know, uh, we we do not have a letter uh, that was written to Laodicea or a letter coming from Laodicea. Most scholars believe that this was the letter to the Ephesians that was also a circulating letter that had made its way to uh, Lithopolis. So what's the main theme in this book? Very simple, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus is preeminent over all creation. He is supreme. He is Lord over all earthly rulers and cosmic powers. Now, another helpful thing as we move into this book is to uh, look at the structure of the book. It's similar to the letter to the Ephesians. The main body of the letter is divided into two sections. The first um, is uh, a theological exposition. The second part of it is practical application. And this is typical with Paul. So in chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 23, Paul refutes the false teaching. But in chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 7, he exhorts the Colossians to proper Christian living. And so when you read Paul's writings, you often see him doing this. He, he spends the first couple of chapters or so, two or three chapters, laying down a theological framework. This, this is what is true. This is what we should believe. This is what we should build our life on. And then he turns in the second half of his book and says, all right, in light of this, this is how we are to live. And I just love how he does that.
What's another interesting fact is roughly a third of Colossians appears in Ephesians. So if you read those two books together, you're going to hear things that, well, I just read that in the other book. Yeah, it's true. A third of the Colossians appears in Ephesians. Now, why, why Colossians? Why study it? I, I, you know, some of you are saying, okay, I get it. It kind of goes hand in hand with Ephesians. We studied Ephesians, so we're doing Colossians. But I happen to believe that this particular book is very, very relevant for us today. It is desperately needed too, I think. Too many professing Christians believe a lot of the right stuff, but they mix it in with a bunch of other stuff. They add things to the gospel. And they may not even be aware of it, but what they're really saying is that Christ is not enough. He's not sufficient. I need something more. And you've probably heard people say things like that. I need something besides Jesus. I need some new experience, some new revelation, some new teaching or manifestation of the Spirit. In addition to that, there are those who believe that to be like Jesus, you have to obey certain rules, observe certain holy days, follow certain rituals, wear certain clothing, don't eat certain foods or drink certain drinks. There are, there are those that believe that you have to wear clothing of a certain length. Or not drink the devil's brew. Play cards. Go to the movies. Or otherwise have fun. Now you may not have run into that. But I have run into that. I know my wife has run into that. There are a lot of churches. A lot of believers who believe these things. Some teach that you have to follow certain formulas to obtain blessing and to grow in Christ-likeness. You need to pray this prayer, right? Every so often, there's this thing that just sweeps the nation. There's this new prayer, the, you know, the prayer of Jabez or whatever. You, you have to pray this prayer, you need to cast your bread upon the water. You need to sow your seed of faith. It's kind of funny that bread and seed always turns out to be money. Buy this book. Buy this trinket. Buy this anointed prayer cloth. You need this vial of holy water or this piece of the cross of Christ. Moreover, you need to pray a certain way using certain words and not others. Remember, it's the power of positive confession. Name it, claim it, and then get on with it. Believe me, man-made religion is alive and well in 2021. And more people than we'd like to admit have been sucked into it. And sadly, they don't even realize it. Jesus plus anything else is a destructive heresy. And it needs to be called out as such. Again, Paul's argument is very simple here. Jesus is enough. We are complete in Christ. 
So with this backdrop, and believe me, I could have given you a lot more, but with this backdrop, let's dive in to the book of Colossians. If you would, open up your Bibles, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles on the back tables, but I'll also be putting the Scripture up on screen. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. First thing I want you to notice here is that Paul refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, broadly speaking, the word apostle simply means a sent one, an envoy, a a messenger. The modern-day missionary would fit this very well. But in a narrower sense, it refers to those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, whom he called into ministry to carry on his mission in the world, and who also had been granted Uh, the power and the ability to perform signs and wonders. And and so he's, he's establishing his credentials here, and he says an apostle of the Lord Jesus by the will of God. And what he's saying here is basically, I did not one day wake up and say, you know, I think I'm gonna be an apostle. I, I think that'd be a cool job for me to do. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of like that. He says, no, I, I didn't seek that. I didn't choose that. It wasn't a group of men who, you know, all of a sudden said, hey, you're, you're an apostle. You're our, you're our man. He says he is an apostle by the will of God, that God chose him. And of course, if you've read through the book of Acts, you see Paul share his personal testimony in three different occasions of how God arrested him on the road to Damascus. I mean, he, Paul had no intention of serving Christ. He was persecuting the church. And then God said, I want you. And, and he got him. And he appointed him as, as, as an apostle And then he writes, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. And the word for saints there is the word hagias, which literally means holy ones. Ones who are set apart. And of course, you have to ask the question, set apart from what? Set apart to what? They are set apart from the world and the world systems. And they are set apart to God for his service. They are dedicated or consecrated to God. Now, Paul is not writing to two different groups of people. He's not writing to the saints of God and faithful brothers in Christ. He is writing to one group of people. He's writing to the saints of God who are faithful in Christ. Now, why bring that up? Because if you belong to Christ, you too are a saint of God. You are set apart from the world and to God. You are called to be holy. You are consecrated and dedicated to the service of God. 
And that's what Paul is saying to the Colossian believers. He's trying to get them to understand their unique identity in Christ. They are saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now this is not just a polite greeting. This is a blessing that Paul is bestowing as he writes And it is in itself a summary of the gospel. And it serves as a reminder that they are in Christ by the grace of God. See, Paul understands that peace from God is a byproduct of the grace of God. We could never have peace from God or peace with God apart from the grace of God. Because there's nothing that we can do to earn his love, his acceptance, his forgiveness. We are merely recipients of his great love through the shed blood of Christ at the cross. He understands that grace is not just needed for salvation, it's needed for our sanctification. It is needed for our relationships with one another. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And it's not just peace with God, it's peace with one another. It's being in relational harmony with all those who call upon the name of Christ. So as we launch out into this book, What I want you to see is that in many ways, the Colossian church is a model church for us. It's a church worthy of emulation because they were a gospel-formed church, a church formed around the gospel and sustained by the gospel. So my goal this morning, in addition to laying the groundwork and the background for our study in the book, is for us to see the centrality and the power of the gospel in the life of the Colossian church and then to find application of that for our lives and for our church. So let's jump into the, to verse three here. Paul says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, before I go on on any further, I need to draw attention to something in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles uh, with you. Um, Some translations associate the word always with prayer. So if you look at your Bible, you may see it. For instance, the King James Version says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. The New Living Translation says something similar. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God. Well, I believe that the ESV, the New International 84, the CSV, rightly place the word with the phrase, we thank God, or we give thanks to God. Notice how that changes the meaning. We always thank God, see, we always, what? Thank God when we pray for you. 
So Paul is not saying that he is always praying for the Colossians. Rather, that when they did, they always thanked God for them. So why did Paul give thanks to God for the Colossian church? Well, it's because of the good report that he received. Paul had never visited Colossae, but he heard about them. He heard about this church. He heard of their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. Now, some churches are known for being liberal, legalistic, or lukewarm. Some churches are known as being dead or dying. Some churches are known as traditional or modern, friendly or unfriendly, big or small. But here is a church that is known far and wide for its faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. And their love for all the saints here, Paul is speaking about their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world, not just those in their backyard. Question, what are we known for? What do we want to be known for? I can think of a lot of things that we could be known for, and they're not all good. But when I think about the Colossian church, when I think about who they were as a gospel-formed church, I can't help but think, wouldn't it be wonderful if New Life Church was known for the same thing? That people far and wide, when they hear of New Life Church, they think there is a church. Those are a group of people We've heard about their faith in God and their love for all the saints. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If that's the first thing that came to people's minds when they thought about us. Now, Paul is not trying to flatter the Colossians, and he certainly doesn't want them to be prideful, so he is quick here to give God the credit. It is because of him that they are in Christ and that they are able to love all the saints. It's as if Paul is saying, yes, we've heard of your faith and your love and we thank God for it. Because being human, it's really easy to take the credit for that. Yeah, aren't we spiritual? Aren't we a loving bunch? Why wouldn't people want to be like us? We're, we're great. Anything that we do that is worth anything is a gift from God. It's by his grace. He gives us the gifts to use. He gives us the talents and the abilities that we have to serve him and one another. God and God alone deserves all the credit. We can take no credit for our salvation. We can take no credit for our sanctification. If you are in Christ, it is only by God's grace and it's only by God's grace that you will continue to grow in Christ-likeness. And so just in these first few verses of Colossians, it is so clear to see the centrality and the power of the gospel in the Colossian church. And 
keep this in mind too. Paul did not hear of their faith and love in, in Christ without there being a period of time that has, has gone by. He, he heard, he didn't hear simply because the word came back to him that the Colossian church or the, the people of Colossae received the gospel and believed it. Now, that's good news. But it's not something to get too excited about. Paul isn't getting excited about the fact that they heard the gospel as so much as they were steadfast in the gospel. Do you see the difference? It was only as time passed that their faith became evident and they had an opportunity to demonstrate love for all the saints. And so there was, a, in a sense, a period of, of testing. The gospel transformed their lives. That's why I don't get too excited about seed. I know we talked about seed, you know, recently, and the importance of sowing seed. You gotta have seed. You gotta have people that are willing to sow the seed. But I don't get really excited about seed. Seed is seed. That's all that it is. Until it gets planted in the ground, until it sprouts up, and until it grows, and until it produces a crop. So I don't get too excited anymore when I hear about somebody who prays to receive Christ. I don't get too excited when I hear that somebody got saved because praying a prayer is easy. I want to see if it sticks. I want to see if there was a real transaction here. If their heart was really regenerated by the Holy Spirit. I get excited when I see seed growing and, and maturing and that's the one thing about the Colossian church that you can say that the Colossian believers were not faithful one day and unfaithful the next. If they were, Paul never would have heard of their faith and love. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul writes, For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should, and that your faith in Christ is strong. Again, what a wonderful testimony. What a wonderful observation. And this is the kind of testimony that I want to have. This is the kind of testimony that I want us to have as a church. And not just me. Everyone in leadership here wants this to be our testimony that we are living as we should and that our faith in Christ is strong. So it should be no surprise that Paul links faith and love together here in this passage. Faith and love go together. And in fact, it's one of the fruits of, of the Spirit. And it's proof that our faith is genuine. Listen to what 
the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now, if you, if you stop and think about that for a moment, I mean, that's a big statement, that, that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Why is that such an important telltale sign that we really belong to Christ? It's because the brothers aren't so easy to love sometimes, right? I mean, most of the time we struggle to love one another because we're different, we are just different from one another in many ways. I mean, it's easy to love people who are just like you, look like you, talk like you, think like you, agree with everything that you say. But I think one of the tests is can we love those with whom we disagree? And Paul says, hey, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And then in 1 John chapter 4, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, a real Christian is infused with God's love for other people. Specifically here for our brothers and sisters in Christ. His shed blood and our faith in him is what unites us together as one family in one body. As the scripture says, we love because he first loved us. So, I think it's clear that we can see the centrality and the power of the gospel in the Colossian church. But what are some practical ways that, that we can apply what we see in them in our lives and in our church? So I'm just gonna kind of throw a few things out to you real quick. Some of these, they're not new. You've heard these before, but it's good to be reminded of them. I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to repent. We need to repent and believe the gospel. That's where it started for the Colossians. That's where it starts for us. And if you're here this morning or watching online and you do not have absolute assurance that if you died today, that you would step into eternity with God, then I urge you to get on your knees this morning to pray to God and ask him to save you. Scripture tells us that we, we must repent of our sins. That means we turn from our sins and we turn to Christ knowing that he died on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins. And when we receive him into our life, he promises to forgive us and to cleanse us and to make us into a child of God. And so it starts with repenting and believing the gospel. Um, I think another thing you can do if you're here this morning and, and you have not been baptized since you believed, 
That's one of the first steps of obedience a Christian takes in their Christian life is to be baptized. And in fact, after the service this morning, we're going to have um, a baptism information meeting right across the hall. So if that's you, come, come to the meeting afterwards. won't be long, 15 minutes, and um, we'll answer questions for you and help you take that next step in your faith. Another thing we can do is to not forsake meeting together. Again, a few weeks ago, we've talked about this. Come early to worship. Don't be in a hurry to leave. Wasn't last week cool? I mean, who knew donuts would be such a big draw? But, I mean, you guys came out of the woodwork for that, and it was great. I don't know if anybody noticed, I was up in the front here when Steph was doing announcements, I was taking pictures. I figured I had to have something for posterity, should we never see it again, you know? Um, But seriously, I mean, even now we've got the coffee back. Um, Come early, take time to to spend time with with each other. Engage others in conversation, uh, especially those that you don't know or, or know that well. You can plug into a life group, into a D group, Third, make efforts to get to know people outside of church events. Don't just, you know, it's got to be a church event, you know. If they serve donuts, I'll come out. If it's a picnic, I'll come out. If it's, you know, pick up the phone, call somebody, invite them to do something. Go do My wife and I are going kayaking this afternoon with another couple, you know, from the church. We want to get to know them better. We want to spend time together. We want to have fun together. You can do that. Invite somebody over for dinner, for lunch, or dessert. Have a game night. Four, find practical ways to love and serve one another. One practical way that you can do that is by generously supporting this church and its ministries. Because we can't help others without the necessary resources to do so. You can give of your time, your talent, and your treasures. You can serve on a ministry team. Most of you, when you came in this morning, there was a flyer or a handout on your seat that lists all the different ways that you can plug in and serve. And we really need you to step up. We need you to love one another enough to say, you know what, I'm going to do my part. And I'd like to talk to somebody about this particular area of ministry. So I I hope that you will do it. You can visit those who are sick or shut in. You can offer help to those in need, whether it's providing wise counsel, gas money, or a meal. And you can pray with others as God gives you opportunity. And then finally, engage people with the gospel. Share your faith in Christ with others. See, the church at Colossae was filled with people who were characterized by holiness, they were saints, by their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. But you still have to ask the question, why? Why would anyone choose to live a life like this? Why would anybody decide to follow Jesus when it often meant being ostracized from your community, being severed from your family, 
Who would do this knowing that it would open you up to ridicule, if not persecution? Why say no to self and the sinful pleasures of this world to put others first and to love them sacrificially? Well, verse 5 gives us the answer. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See, the believers at Colossae were able to maintain their faith in Christ and their love for all of the saints because of the hope that was laid up or stored up or reserved for them in heaven. Peter spoke of it this way. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. Through the resurrection, excuse me, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The rest of verse 5 kind of explains how they acquired this hope. We go to that verse. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. You see, they were able to live godly lives in a godless culture because they had the word of truth. The gospel, and they believed it, and they chose to believe that there was more to this life than what they could see or taste or touch. Or They believed that there was a greater reality beyond this world. They believed, therefore, they had hope. I like what John MacArthur said in his commentary on Colossians. He said this, that the Christian has a different perspective. He is willing to forsake the present glory, comfort, and satisfaction of this present world for the future glory that is his in Christ. In contrast to the buy now, pay later attitude prevalent in the world, the Christian is willing to pay now and receive it later. What makes Christians willing to make such a sacrifice? Hope based on faith that the future holds something far better than the present. Paul goes on to tell us that the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing in their lives. And not just in their lives, but throughout the world. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel bears fruit. Is it bearing fruit in your life? Can you see fruit of the gospel in your life? We've already said love is one evidence of it. But when the gospel penetrates the human heart, it always produces fruit, both, both inward and outward. 
Inwardly, it does it when it regenerates the human heart and we become the children of God. It changes us from the inside out. It helps conform us to the image of Christ. And we begin to bear fruit as individuals. But it's not just individual fruit or inward fruit, it's also outward fruit. In that, as we proclaim the gospel and people respond to it, the kingdom expands and the church grows. came up with another original saying, and I like it, so write it down. The more the gospel gets into us, the more the gospel will flow out of us. The growth of the church and the expansion of the kingdom is directly related to your growth and my growth as individuals, and as we come together as a church, we also exert influence in our community and in the world. I'm almost done. Told you it was gonna be a long one. I want you to notice something about their fruit. It says the Colossians had been bearing fruit, catch this, since the day they heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You see, those who truly understand and comprehend the grace of God in truth, the gospel, the word of truth, they will bear fruit. And you don't have to wait five years to see it. It starts day one. That's one of, one of the evidences I think that a person has had a genuine conversion experience is that you see change. You may not see all the changes because that's sanctification, but there ought to be transformation that is immediate. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Grace is at the very heart of the gospel. It is the unmerited favor of God. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. As I conclude, I want to draw your attention to Epaphras. Salvation is by grace, but God uses individuals to be conduits of his grace to others. And in this case, one man, Epaphras, he responds to the gospel, and then he took the good news back to his hometown where he gladly shared it with others and where he saw people respond to the gospel and the church was born in his own hometown. I think God's calling us to do the same thing.
to dare to allow him to do a deep work in us, to transform us, and then for us to carry the gospel to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our families, and dare to believe that God will use us to enlarge his kingdom. The gospel is the power of God to salvation and for our sanctification. And in verse seven and eight, we see this description of Epaphras. Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now this kind of comes full circle to, to Lori's comment earlier. Listen, I'm not in a hurry, but wouldn't this be a great epitaph? A beloved servant and faithful minister of Christ. It was especially meaningful to me to hear, Lori, you share that earlier because that's my heartbeat. I want to be a faithful, faithful minister of Christ. I want to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant one day. And I hope that's your prayer too. Now, I'm so excited about this study, spending time together with you in this amazing little book. Are you ready? Colossians is going to help us recognize counterfeit gospels. It will elevate our view of God. It will help us rest in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. It will fortify us against false teaching, and it will help us to live a life pleasing to God. That is what the book of Colossians is all about. Jesus is enough. The gospel is enough. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we've had to look at your word and just marvel at what you have done in the life of Paul and Epaphras and Timothy and the church at Colossae. And Lord, you saw fit to include this little letter in our Bibles so that we might learn from them, that we might apply the things that were true of them. Father, guard our hearts against false teaching. Help us to know the truth so that we might not fall prey to counterfeit gospels. And may you receive all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.